Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. Janice, I said I'm delighted to be joined in studio by you today and we're going to discuss an interesting talk, topic. Um, Eplim. Eplim? Is Eplim? Is that how I'm pronouncing it correctly? Eplim. Eplim, yeah. Uh, it's so, a, yeah. a drug controversy that's about to explode. I've never heard it before. What is it? And yeah, I didn't either until somebody asked me about it and I went researching it. Mm. And you know the way the recent past has been kind of littered somewhat with a whole load of kind of controversies in, in the medical stroke, medical negligence field. And funnily enough, this morning I was almost distracted before I was prepping for the programme here, although some people might think I don't prep for it, but I actually do. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> I was almost distracted and started to read the judgment handed down by the judge who was dealing with the cervical cancer case, the Morrissey judgment. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the thing that kind of stopped me really was that there's 90 pages or well, maybe 60 or 70 pages of it. And I started to read the the, the opening of it uh, because that raises some really interesting questions. And it raises questions from a, a legal perspective and also from a kind of a public knowledge perspective insofar as if if you remember uh, as in I doubt very much that you could forget but that whole scenario was kind of prefaced by a lack of information by uh, a number of different entities involved Mm -hmm. and the fact that they didn't tell people what the problem was or in fact whether there was a problem or not and this whole screening the whole issue of the screening and the fact that the state delegated if you like the function to carry out this this very important function which affected a a considerable number of, of women and you know the whole refrain from the whole thing the whole thing that kind of struck you very much when you were watching it as an observer was that if they had simply told these poor women that there was an issue or rather that there was something that should be investigated, the whole thing might never have happened at all. And this, this and the case and you know that there's been quite a lot of talk in the last week about the judgment handed down on it and one of the principles that, and I'll try and make sure that I get the, the term right, one of the principles that the judge was talking about was the whole knowledge principle. In other words, when you're looking at the scan, how do you report on the scan and what level of knowledge should you apply to, the, you know, so if there's, if there's a negative or if there's a margin of error, where does it fall? And by and large, the judge said, you know, it falls in favour of the individual mm-hmm. rather than the state. But Leaving that aside then, somebody inquired during the week about this drug, that, as you said, the epilim drugs. It's uh, epilim sodium valproate. I think valproate, sodium valproate is the kind of ingredient, if, if you like, whereas epilim is the trade name, if you like, that they're using. But when I looked at this, I mean, this was really um, kind of... To say it's disturbing, I suppose, might be a little bit dramatic, but what what is very obvious about it is that this is a drug that's prescribed for uh, either epilepsy or bipolar disorder. It was it was 
It was initially for epilepsy because apparently it's an anti-convulsant drug. So it, it, epilepsy is the obvious one that yeah. you might that would come to mind when you would be thinking about it. Control but it also seizures. started to be in, started to come into into play with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Now, you might ask, why should this be kind of an issue now? Well, the reason that it's an issue now is somewhat similar to the the. Uh, lack of information issue that we're talking about insofar as this came in in France for example in 1967 it came into the UK in 1970 mm-hmm. it came into Ireland I think in 1980 1982 two, 3 or 1984 but it came in in the, in the early 1980s so it isn't just put into the marketplace yeah. so it's been around for quite a long time and in the UK, they looked at it in the 70s. And you have, just by way of kind of background information, you have, like in everything, you have re- regulatory authorities. We're all, you know, there's quite a lot of regulation, as you can imagine, when it comes to drugs. And there's quite a lot of testing when it comes to drugs. But when the drug comes on the market, you've got a regulatory authority that, if you like, regulates th- the drug. So... Like in modern times now, regulation has obviously stepped up quite considerably in more recent years. But in the 70s, the regulatory authority, and the reason I'm talking about France, by the way, is that if you go back to the hip cases, you know, the, I was going to say the dodgy hip cases, but you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. the ASRs, the Dupuis Dupuis, hips, where there was a lot of issues with the hips. The reason that that was again a big issue from the point of view of any individual involved was again the lack of information information. because again this was withdrawn in Australia it was withdrawn in the States it was withdrawn and then continued to be in circulation in Ireland so you know from an obvious point of view we seem to be kind of hitting the same issues repeatedly now and to such an extent you have to be asking yourself you know why is there something not being done about this from an end user's point of view but this particular drug that we're talking about the epilim drug this is the subject of a class action in France why because initially when they looked at it in France they were thinking that there might be a problem with it uh, but when they looked at it more closely and started doing research on it, they suddenly realised that the extent of the problem was significantly more. And now, they, this they, is yeah. 2014 we're talking about. This isn't, you know, 10 years ago or as in 10 years after it went in circulation. So they've actually initiated a class action in France because of the fact, not so much that there are issues with the drug, because you're going to always have, have issues with drugs, as you yeah. know, there's always going to be side effects. Mm-hmm. And the big question isn't whether there's a side effect. The big question is whether or not you're balancing the benefits of the drug against the side effect and whether or not you warn. So from a legal point of view, it's a question of individual warning. But there's also the issue, as we had with the cervical cancer case, 
the public warning. In other words, if you take it that quite a number of drugs are put into the system and are actually prescribed through the state agency. So you have a situation where in Ireland we have the Department of Health, but we also have the HSE. So you have a situation, and as you know, the HSE were one of the defendants in the cervical cancer case. And the whole issue that comes into play there is the extent to which they were responsible, if you like, for the disaster that is cervical cancer. But the issue that I have here with this is I think we we have another potential disaster on our hands insofar as the extent of the side effect that we're talking about here is alarming from this point of view that you've got 30 to 40 percent risk of a serious developmental disorder if this drug is taken during pregnancy. Now, it's, it's basically what you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to be taking this drug if you're of childbearing potential. Mm-hmm. A very inelegant way of putting it. But, and this class act relates solely to that, doesn't it? That it relates solely, yeah. yeah it relates women, women who are pregnant or were exactly, going to get exactly. pregnant on this particular Correct. medication. Correct. And the percentage and the whole issue about it or the whole nub of it is the warning that wasn't given or to the extent that the, the extent of the warning so it's it's as much to do with the degree of warning that was given rather than whether there was warning given or not and i mean and again when you look into this uh, you know and you read the materials on it i mean the uk medicines healthcare products regulatory agency which was shortened to mhra if you like but that Agency again, the UK version of the Irish Regulatory Authority. That authority looked at this in the 70s and it sounded so kind of paternalistic, if you like, in terms of the approach. I mean, I've often said that when you look at medical negligence and you look at the whole area of responsibility for, you know, issues that arise, historically, we always took the view that, you know, the the uh, they call it the paternalistic view that you know the doctor was right you know and that you wouldn't question that that obviously has changed and that was obviously something that was even part of the regulatory authorities because in the UK in the 70s they decided not to put a warning on the box because it might give rise to fruitless anxiety is how they defined it and <clears throat> the issue, obviously the issue then it wasn't fruitless at all as it turns out. Oh no, no. And um, interestingly enough, I mean this has become very much of a, a live issue with the HSE because there was a freedom of information request made to the HSE on this particular matter in the last 12 months. And the beauty, again, it's one of these pieces of a legislation that's hugely helpful to the public at large and to anybody who might want to know. The Freedom of Information Act released interchanges or changes or emails between various people in the HSE and the end result of it was that when you read the emails that are going back and forth within the HSE and one wonders if you look at it in 2017 how much of it, how much if you like, the cervical cancer issue was a hugely, hugely 
you know, awful thing to have happened. But it's amazing, as as always, from something so bad would come a lot of good insofar as there obviously appears to be an awakening coming within the HSE. And maybe that's somewhat judgmental on my part. But, you know, there is an awareness certainly within the powers that be that there is now responsibility to ensure that people are properly informed that the information is put out there and you see you know you often think of it I, I, I always think of it myself when I go down for my tablets for my um, when it post stroke when I went down to get whatever and I looked at the five of them I went home and I opened the box and then I read all the details in it and all the various warnings in it Yeah, and I, I thought to myself you know, it's a bit of a job going through all those warnings yeah. and reading them all and trying to understand them. You'd need, you'd certainly need a dictionary, if not Google sitting beside you, trying to understand what, what exactly it is. <laughs> or a degree in pharmacology, exactly. So the big issue, and, you know, there are now, uh, as you can imagine, there are action groups in the, in the UK and in Ireland and the Epilepsy Association, as I understand it, are very active in trying to get awareness out there yeah. to people who are using this drug as to the effects that it can have and the detrimental effects that it can have. But I mean, the other thing that they raised, again, I'm not sure whether it was France, I think it was the French uh, materials. The whole issue of this is the effect not only that it might have on one generation, but whether it might in fact have an effect on the following generation. Because apparently in France they're now finding that it is having an effect on further generations and that that's horrific i mean that's one of the the things that often struck me i remember when we we were going through all of the cases that we dealt with in the dupuy scenarios and we looked back on them we did a review of them there recently and one of the alarming things that kind of struck us whether it was coincidental or not was that as you know with with the Dupuy scenario, you've got the metal ions that are going into the, your bloodstream mm-hmm. from the you know the friction that occurs using the devices. And one of the things that became very relevant when you were looking at that was the, whether or not it had a long-term impact. But we went back through and a number of our clients that we dealt with, and we dealt with a reasonable number of clients, a number of clients actually died from cancer and you had to ask yourself you know, what relevance, if any and there is no research out there because we went looking for the research out there so if you look at a drug like Epilem, and then, you know what starts to really strike you then when you start looking at this and you know we all I don't know whether you had this one when you were growing up but I, I know certainly I'm going to say as I matured but when, when I got to adulthood, adulthood and you start taking on responsibility for yourself uh, one of the things that was always there you know whether and you often wondered was an old wise tailor whatever was you I don't like taking drugs I don't want to take drugs if I can avoid mm-hmm. and I don't mean you know I don't mean the drugs we shouldn't yeah. be taking yeah. I mean the ones that were prescribed us, and we yeah. all have a reluctance to take them now I just think that there's a huge uh, information gap there that needs to be filled on drugs and the way that the information is portrayed and given out to the individual that's prescribed the drugs because you see this is just dealing with the practicalities of it if you suddenly start putting the legal microscope on it, this area as you would with cervical cancer or as you would with the Dupuy hips you're suddenly opening a potential floodgate yeah. of 
litigation. And I think it kind of behoves people who are involved in the area to ensure that the information is relayed to the patients and it's relayed in a way that is fully and utterly comprehensible from their point of view, you know, and I mean, effectively, that's the issue that seems to be rising here. And if you're talking about a 40% possibility of a negative impact by virtue of somebody taking this drug or being on this drug when they're likely to get pregnant, you're in a situation there where the warning has to has be, to be on the has to match yeah. Yeah. the risk. Of course. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Welcome back to Tip Today with myself, uh, Trudy Waters. Well, I'm still joined in studio by um, by John Lynch and we've been talking about Epilim, uh, the latest drug drug controversy set to explode. We were talking about the, the class action in France, but um, uh, for people in Ireland, uh, uh, you were saying that it's something now that they're looking at here and if people have a case, what, what should they do? Well, I mean, basically, see, what you're talking about here is there's a couple of issues that, that come to mind when you're talking about anything to do with law and primarily the issue of evidence arises. But, I mean, <clears throat> the the facts of it need to be established. You need to, f- you need to get hold of all of the paperwork that's involved. You need to get hold of all medical records. You need to take a full narrative statement about what's involved. But, I mean, I think probably what's... You know, I mean, when you look at the area of law when law points it's in the direction of you know prescriptive medicine and the whole area of what you know how does the law look at this i mean there was one case on this that i came across which was actually settled which involved prescribing this drug or this drug being prescribed and an issue arising and litigation uh, ensued and the case was settled so there's no case law on mm-hmm. it at, yeah. at present. But one can simply assume that the usual principles of negligence will apply. So when you're looking at negligence and you're looking at the area of prescribed drugs, you're looking at a situation uh, and or treatment, if you know what I mean. You're looking at the situation that I was talking about, which is the issue of consent. So if you're going into your doctor and you're going to get prescribed a drug you're going to consent to it. Rather, you have to consent to it. You know what I mean? You can't be, it can't be forced upon you. Now, in those circumstances, the issue of consent is mirrored on the other side of the mirror by knowledge. So in other words, you must know what you're consenting to. Mm -hmm. So when the law looks at this area, one of the areas that the law is going to look at, as well as, if you like, the negligence of the doctor. Like if you deal with the obvious scenarios where you were prescribed when you clearly shouldn't even prescribe it. Mm-hmm. So the most obvious one is that you're dealing with somebody who has epilepsy and who is pregnant and you know that they're pregnant as in you're the medical practitioner yeah. and you prescribe this drug. Well then obviously under those circumstances that's a kind of a, a no-brainer, no-brainer that, yeah. that, that, you know, that fails any duty of care mm-hmm. that you might have to your patient. But the other area that you have a duty of care to, and whether you're the pharmacist or you're the doctor or you're the nurse or you're within the administration system of the hospital, under those scenarios, you're, it's the warning issue that we're talking about. And I think what's 
interesting if and again I use that word quite a lot but what's interesting from a legal perspective is not so much whether the warning was given but how good the warning was and the level of warning that's required and as I was saying to you before the break where you're looking at a situation where the impact or the consequences of or the likely consequences if things go wrong the impact is very serious yeah. obviously then you've got to weigh both of them have to be balanced so the warning has to be significant and I mean if you go back to the point here about the French scenario and why if the drug was introduced in 1967 why did it take until 2017 yeah. 40 years later my maths are probably not precisely accurate but 40 years later or so did why did it take 40 years we're 30 years some odd here in Ireland that the drug has been in the system why now you might ask the question what well, the answer why now is that people if they didn't know about it, if they weren't aware of it, and were simply prescribed something and did what you would normally do, you know, except mm-hmm. that it's in your best interest to do it. If it turns out that it's not and the warnings aren't adequate to match the risk, well, then under those circumstances, you have to, you have to look to the issue of consent because consent obviously can't be given when you don't have full information. And the issue of consent is a quite a, a tricky one in Irish law because the reason that it's tricky is that it's kind of a mix between subjective and objective. Because, I mean, if you're giving consent, as a patient, you know, as I said, you're not a pharmacologist and you're certainly not a pharmacist, so you you know, you're giving consent, but you're giving consent based on the knowledge of the practitioner or the drug company that Mm. that they're doing, they're giving you this in your best interest. Correct. So, if it turns out that, that it's not, and, you know, they try, in terms of legal case, and it turns back on you, surely when you're, you're making the point, yes, I'm, I'm giving consent, but I'm giving it in a, in, in a context whereby I'm relying on the medical experts mm. that are advising me in this way. Correct, yeah. yeah. And, and it's a bit like, you know that old adage, and actually I must go and check it because I pulled out a case uh, where, you know the old legal term that says ignorance of the law is no defence? Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, that kind of permeates this area in that, you know, when you're in a situation, for example, that you're, let's say the revenue, I think I might have said this to Fran last week, if the revenue commissioners are coming after you and you say, but sure, I gave it to my son, my good bookkeeper, my accountant or whatever. So I didn't look at it. Well, the answer is that's no defence. The question in in the medical arena, however, and in the arena, as you say, when you're dealing with highly specialised areas, there has to be an element of, you know, objectivity applied to the issue of consent as well as subjective you know subjective issues mm-hmm. as well so it the test is 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 it's is a tricky enough one to apply but i think the issue here is more to do with the fact that if you look at what is done now compared to what was done 10 years ago and even four years ago because literally within the last two years the HSE have started to talk about writing directly to patients Mm -hmm. so if you think about it you're now talking about the health authority now don't forget that they they are involved in issuing this drug but they're now talking about writing directly to 
the the individual themselves. Now that's a big, big Mm -hmm. issue of knowledge. That's a big issue of consent. That's a big issue of sending the information directly. So you get this letter from the HSE boldly setting out, here are the risks. Now that's a big change from a situation where you go into the pharmacy you get your your prescription um, and in certain instances there was talk about getting batches of these drugs with no leaflets, no information at all. So obviously that's the extreme scenario Mm -hmm. which you would, again, a no-brainer in terms of, you know, knowledge. How can you have knowledge of something you haven't been told about? about, But the the big thing now is they've now introduced a, a system where you get a little card from the drug the drug company mm-hmm. enclosed with inst- so you know they those long i don't know do you, i've had reason to read them in the in the recent number of weeks but opening out these sheets and sheets about five or six sheet it, you know when you you take out the box the pill box mm-hmm. and you get this, this huge big ex- massive this big yeah. long long thing yeah, near, yeah. it's like i don't know why they do it like that but it's a big long yoke yeah. and you'd spend ages you'd be tired by the time you'd be halfway down the thing but with this, if you think about it, it doesn't have to be such a long document. One wonders and whether you could make the argument that the longer the document, the lower the likely or the more likelihood that somebody won't read it, as opposed to a simple short little card saying do not take this drug if if, if you know, so and you like you have on the outside of some medications. I mean, I'm one particular one where I can't take grapefruit with it. It's written mm. clearly, separately on the outside of the box. Now, mm. it's not going to have any major adverse effects, but it won't. It'll prevent the the drug from working as well as it should do. I so have something well, is. I'm have sure. you? <laughs> 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 we can share war stories later. But you know, but therefore, I specifically know, and I don't like grapefruit anyway. Mm. But I cannot take this with this drug, and I know it. Correct. It and me. if you take it, for example, that if you buy a pack of cigarettes now. You, you know, you'd oh, have it's pretty to, much telling me. You'd have to be to, kind yeah. of blind not you, to you see the risks on it. <laughs> uh, then, in terms of, are we seeing a, a rise in the number of medical neg- negligence cases regarding drug pre- uh, prescriptions? Because it's just, we were talking off there, uh, off air. When, when I saw this case, I was thinking of thalidomide, and I, yes. I thought we had come so far that we were, you know, that, that that those kind of incidents, those kinds of tragedies, can never happen again. But they seem to be reoccurring all the time. There, unfortunately, yeah. there, and I think just kind of on a closing note, it just it's kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. To find that you know, I mean, as I said to you, I'm starting to read, to read that case in cervical cancer, and you read like sixty pages of judgment dealing with something, and you're wondering to yourself, you know, how did you get there? And we're now looking at an appeal of it, but I mean, look at the, if you look at this situation, there's sixteen hundred women that have been prescribed with this drug, as I understand it in Ireland, mm-hmm. sixteen hundred. That's a lot. And you're talking about a 40%, 30 to 40% risk. I mean, if that doesn't merit a huge amount of warning to somebody, I don't know what would, you know. So, and I mean, the whole area, one of the other areas that interests me is that, and we haven't, again, we've narrowed it from a legal point of view, it's been quite narrowed, and the whole area of exemplary damages, it's it's a very much of an American concept, is that I remember sitting on a plane with this American lawyer 
that there was more than the two of us there, obviously. But and I, he was he was uh, coming on holidays to Europe, and I was asking him, you know, he was involved in litigation, and he, what were you involved in? Uh, and he, he was, I was saying to him, how come you get these two million, three million awards? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't relate to the injuries. He said, no. In our, in America, the whole idea is to punish somebody who breaches, if you like, the law of negligence. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole area of exemplary damages. Now, in the case, the cervical cancer case, one of the questions that arose there is whether or not the judge would award exemplary damages. Now, I haven't read it, uh, but I would be surprised if he does. And I might be wrong, but I would be surprised if he does. But the whole area of exemplary damages raised its head also with the hip scenario. And the reason that it raises its head to such an extent is that to the law, when you look at a situation where somebody deliberately or negligently or carelessly or recklessly covers up something so that people don't know about it. So, for example, the we hips were withdrawn in Australia and however many years later they were still in circulation in Europe. And the question there is, surely the company knew that Mm -hmm. and surely they should have done something about that. And then that then leads into the question that if you have this drug... Now, again, I'm obviously saying that the drug company are going to say that they issued the warnings Mm -hmm. and it was up to everybody else to follow through on them. And the regulatory authority would have a certain function as well. And whoever's prescribing the drug would have a a function as well in the whole area of warning people. Mm -hmm. But you kind of have to ask yourself the question whether there's scope within the Irish legal system to give exemplary damages where you have a situation that it's proven to be the case that somebody deliberately fails to allow information into circulation mm-hmm. that would ensure that people have the required knowledge to make the informed consent. And I think that's the big issue that I think needs to be addressed. One of the issues that certainly will be addressed and I'll, I'll fill you in next week on whether I'm right or wrong on the exemplary damages in the cervical cancer case. Okay, John Lynch, thank you. That's John Lynch of John Lynch Solicitors.